0: Hi this is Elliot Fishman and welcome to part two of this series on incidental illness and I mentioned before one of the interesting challenges the incidental pancreatic lesion it's somewhat interesting because we never had this problem in the past if we saw an incidental pancreatic lesion it was cystic we assumed it was a pseudocyst but now we've learned a lot more and with better CT we pick up many cystic lesions in fact the number of patients with cystic pancreatic lesions is increasing in our experience. Three to five percent of adults have small incidental pancreatic lesions. Most are small cysts or IPMNs. And then the question is, how do you manage these patients? The question is over and under three sonometers, often over three sonometers, people will consider the potential of resection depending on history. But what about the smaller lesions? Now, we remember that incidental pancreatic cancers and neuroendocrine tumors are rare, but especially neuroendocrine tumors we're picking up much more commonly as we do our arterial phase imaging and have really good spatial resolution. We published an article a couple years ago, and this was on 16-slice CT, that just under 3% of patients had uh, incidental pancreatic cysts, and we saw more cysts with increasing age and with an Asian population. But it should be remembered that's on a 16-slice scanner. The better the scanner, the more smaller cysts, the ones under one centimeter, we are seeing. And the typical lesion is this one. Well-defined, water density, a sonometer to two centimeters. You can track it to a slightly prominent pancreatic duct. Very classic for an IPMN. Now, most IPMNs are benign, but they can change, they can have dysplasia, and so the potential of carcinoma is the concern over a 10-year period. Now, with IPMNs, they can be larger. We talk about a Tanaka criteria that under 3 centimeters you follow. Many people will remove the lesions over 3 cm. They can be multiple, as in this case with a cystic lesion in the head and body of the pancreas. And again, well-defined water density, sharply marginated, no enhancement, very nicely seen. Another example. Here's a cystic lesion with a thin septation. Now, when we look at a cystic lesion, we look for thick septations, nodular wall enhancement, or nodules, and if we see that, then those lesions are more aggressively managed. With the simple lesions, many people will simply do EUS to sample the fluid. Now, several factors uh, can be, should be known. As we mentioned, these incidental lesions, these IPMNs, are more common in an older population and more common in men. The key is that the pancreatic duct is mildly dilated and we classify them as main duct or side branch or mixed type. The side branch are typically benign. The main duct will always be resected because of the high chance of malignancy. A main duct of over a centimeter or greater is suggestive of a main duct IPMN and they have a higher incidence of malignancy and essentially everyone will operate on those patients. Now, there's some predictors of malignancy in IPMN, a lesion size over 3 cm, interval growth over time greater than 2 millimeters a year, the presence of mural nodules, particularly enhancing, but any mural nodule, thick septations, and again, clinical symptoms. Unexplained episodes of pancreatitis or increasing abdominal pain with the cystic lesion will make everyone concerned for carcinoma. Now the ACR has weighed in a bit. Now what are their comments? Surgery should be considered for patients with cysts larger than 3CM. If the lesion is a serous adenoma, which is a different type of lesion, often central calcification, surgery is deferred to at least four centimeters. Patients with simple cysts under 3M can be followed, but attempts should be made to characterize cysts larger than 2CM. If this cannot be done based on the available imaging study, MRI can be done. Cysts under a sonometer cannot be further characterized by imaging, but should be followed less frequently. Again, the question is 6 to 12 months, what should be done? Also, aspiration is strongly advisable to exclude pseudocysts before any surgery is performed. And patients must remain asymptomatic during the follow-up period. If not, the patients will typically get surgery. A lot of work is being done to look at this more carefully. We're looking at cyst cytology. Can we predict what lesions will be important? Bert Vogelstein at Hopkins is doing much of that seminal work. Now, there have been many articles. This is an article by Sahani at Mass General. Annual imaging surveillance is generally sufficient for benign serous adenomas under 4 cm and for asymptomatic lesions. Asymptomatic thin-walled unilocular cysts smaller than 3 cm or side branch IPMN should be followed with CT or MRI at 6 and 12-month intervals. He also comments cystic lesions with more complex features or growth rates greater than a centimeter of the year should be followed more closely. And perhaps surgery would be the ideal thing to do. Symptomatic lesions, lesions with high malignant potential, or lesions over 3CM should be referred for surgical evaluation. EUS with fine needle aspiration can be done preoperatively to assess risk of malignancy, but many people will say once a decision is made to resect, sampling the fluid is not going to change anything. Our typical role at Hopkins, imaging follow-up for an incidentally detected lesion, since we do not know... How fast it's growing would be at six months typically, when they're over 2CM initially perhaps at three months, EUS, and surgery is reserved for main duct IPMNs, MCNs, or mucinous cystic neoplasms, or when lesions are growing more than three to five millimeters a year. Some examples, well-defined cystic lesion body of the pancreas, IPMN. Now I mentioned most incidental lesions will be the cystic lesions, but I think it's important to recognize with good quality CT, with use of arterial phase imaging, you are going to pick up many small vascular pancreatic lesions, like this case. This is a 5mm neuroendocrine tumor, very obvious, something you would never pick up before. We talked in the past about CT being 30 to 50% accurate with neuroendocrine tumors. That's because we weren't doing arterial phase imaging. Now it's in the high 90s. And you can see, here's an example of a three-sonometer neuroendocrine tumor at the head of the pancreas. That's at 30 seconds, but compare the 30 seconds and the 60-second image. The lesion is isodense. There's no common duct dilatation. There's no pancreatic duct dilatation. So you can see how easy it is to miss a lesion. Okay, what else? Splenic lesions. At the end of the day, most incidental splenic lesions are indeed benign. The question is, what do you do with them? How do you manage them? There's a long differential diagnosis, and yes, you can get METS, and yes, you can get lymphoma, and yes, you can get an abscess. But typically, these three things will have some other findings or some history that is very helpful. So the way I look at the spleen is kind of the way I look at the adrenal. At the end of the day, in a patient without a malignancy, almost everything is benign. Reality check. Most splenic lesions are benign. Most can be followed conservatively or, in fact, ignored. We rarely do biopsies. One challenge for the spleen is there's no really good phase technique. We talk about the liver or kidneys with dual phase or three phase imaging. There really are no new good CT techniques for looking at the spleen in general. And things like dual energy CT or perfusion have not added anything. So when you're looking at the spleen and you see something, what should you think about? Clinical history? Is the patient sickle cell? or the cystic lesions or old? Infarcts? If it's a low-density lesion, the patient's febrile, think about an abscess. If the patient has history of melanoma, you got to think about metastasis. Are there old studies available to show the lesion has been there for the last 20 years? What about lab findings? Okay, lymphoma, you're going to have other findings beyond the splenic lesion. And yes, sometimes you get primary splenic lymphoma, so it only involves the spleen. But in those cases, the patient has constitutional symptoms. It's not an incidental finding. And of course, when we look at the spleen, we look at other findings. Are there liver findings present? Are there adenopathy? What else is going on? We could talk about solitary versus multiple lesions, but again, benign lesions can be both, as can infection and as can metastasis. We look at size, not always helpful. We look at enhancement, sometimes that indeed is helpful. Uh, Occasionally, hemangiomas and hematomas have specific enhancement patterns. And then as I mentioned, we look for additional findings beyond the spleen on the CT scan, and also we look at the clinical history. Now, several things about the spleen are important to remember. One, when you scan very early, you get a moray pattern. That is not an infiltrating splenic infiltrating process or a laceration. That's a normal spleen in arterial phase imaging, and you can prove that 30 seconds later. We also see many accessory spleens, usually by the splenic hilum. Up to 16% of patients will have accessory spleens, usually under 2 centimeters or so in size. A critical thing is they enhance identical to the spleen typically on both arterial venous and delayed phase imaging. The issue with accessory spleens is they can simulate pathology from pancreatic masses like neuroendocrine tumors to renal tumors to even adrenal pathology to adenopathy or other findings. Now, the challenge, of course, is that or one of the challenges is that patients can have these incidental splenic lesions these accessory spleens immediately adjacent to the tail of the pancreas or even embedded in the tail of the pancreas. And then it can simulate a neuroendocrine tumor, or perhaps you can't tell, is this a neuroendocrine tumor or is it an accessory spleen? What should I do? We also talk about patients at times where they've had prior surgery, including, for example, a nephrectomy, and then splenic position changes, and you can simulate pathology. So let's go back to the comment I made before about accessory spleens and their challenge. Now the key finding as I'll show you is accessory spleens match the spleen on arterial and venous phase imaging in terms of enhancement. Neuroendocrine tumors are typically much more vascular and they do wash out but not the same way and they don't look the same as the spleen. So you look at this lesion, is this a neuroendocrine tumor of the tail of the pancreas? Well, it's sitting right there, but if you look at it on this phase, it looks identical to the enhancement of the spleen. And this was a a splenule simulating a neuroendocrine tumor. So again, we have additional talks about that, and I can show you a few more cases, but it can be very challenging. Now, when we talk about splenic lesions, as I mentioned, most splenic lesions are indeed benign. Cis, hemangiomas, and hematomas, they can vary in size. Cysts can be small or larger. When they're large, they can have mass effect. When they're large, they can cause symptoms and may have to be removed, very much like hepatic cysts. Most are simple and incidental, but sometimes when large enough, they can be problematic. Splenic cysts can calcify. Now one would always think about an old hematoma when you see dense calcifications, but simple cysts as in this case can calcify. Most cysts are single, but they can be multiple as in this case. No it's not associated with polycystic kidney disease. No it's not associated uh, with uh, polycystic liver disease, but a very nice example. Now I mentioned before Now. In the liver, we talk about 90 or 95% of hemangiomas having a classic pattern, peripheral puddling and filling in peripheral to central over time. Splenic hemangiomas are the most common benign primary tumor of the spleen, Usually in younger patients, you can see multiple lesions in processes like klippel trenaunay weber syndrome or Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome or Turner syndrome, but the majority are incidental findings. They may enhance, very much like hepatic hemangioma, and that makes it very easy, but many of them are simply hypodense or hypodense, and it's much more of a challenge. They may have calcifications, and here's just a simple example of a classic splenic hemangioma And here's a patient with Klippeltrinani-Weber with multiple small hemangiomas. Now, I mentioned before we look at the liver at the same time we look at the spleen and we look at the kidneys as well because certain conditions can involve multiple organs. And so, for example, we could think about lymphoma or metastasis. We also could think about infection. Immunosuppressed patients with infection often will involve the liver and the spleen, rarely the spleen alone, and even liver, spleen, and kidneys. The same thing might be true with lymphoma or metastasis. Another thing to think about is sarcoidosis. Sarcoidosis can involve both organs, or at times can only involve the spleen. Beautiful example here, this looks like lymphoma. Patient was had an incidental c- finding on a CT scan for vague abdominal pain. The patient was asymptomatic for the most part. They thought this was metastatic melanoma or some other metastasis or lymphoma, this was sarcoidosis. Or in this case, multiple splenic lesions, the patient was not febrile, the patient was not immunosuppressed, this was sarcoidosis. And that should come as no surprise to you. Sarcoid involves the spleen in up to 59% of cases. Splenomegaly can range, the splenic findings can range from splenomegaly to nodules, be it single or multiple. So again, you really need to be thinking about the possibilities. Look at other findings. I always mention in my talks that if someone tells me an incidental finding with multiple splenic and hepatic lesions, and everyone's thinking about metastasis versus lymphoma, I'm thinking sarcoidosis. What else can we see in the spleen? We talk about infarction. Classically, low-density wedge-shaped, sharply marginated, can be single or multiple. Common etiologies from bacterial endocarditis to atrial fib to sickle cell disease to lymphoma and splenomegaly. The classic CT appearance, wedge-shaped areas of decreased attenuation, which extend to the surface of the spleen, typically. It can be segmental, can be multiple, or can be global the appearance can change over time. Sickle cell disease is an example of multiple infarcts that occur early and you get auto-infarction of the spleen in SS disease. The spleen size may be very small and a little nubbin of splenic tissue, and you can see it classically here. The only thing that ever looked like this, but usually the spleen was larger, was thorotraic exposure, but we don't see that anymore, fortunately. I mentioned about abscesses. Splenic abscesses are rare and the history usually is helpful. The patient's diabetic, the patient's alcoholic, the patient's IV drug abuse, and the patient is febrile. It's not an incidental finding. This is not a simple cyst. The only thing you could argue about this case is could this be lymphoma? Now, in this patient who's immunosuppressed, it's kind of easy as well. Multiple splenic lesions, often associated with renal and or hepatic lesions. you got to be thinking fungal. Candidiasis and aspergillosis are the ones we think about, but that's classic. But again, it's a bone marrow transplant patient. It's patient's febrile. So those are some of the things to think about in the spleen. I think the spleen is a challenge, and the thing is we don't biopsy it. We routinely get follow-up but most of the time we don't really have pathologic proof unless the patient has a splenectomy for other reasons. But again, a very realistic approach recognizing that most splenic lesions are indeed benign. Well, what else? Bladder cancer is one of the other things, interestingly now, that we're picking up as an incidental finding. And perhaps let me stop right here, and then we'll pick up with bladder cancer.